Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterman, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach and Los Angeles. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, the most comprehensive in-person and online resource for couples recovering from betrayal. And this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Duane are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are excited to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Okay, so welcome back, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking with Marsha and Michael about their recovery journey after betrayal, after the discovery of betrayal. And um, we're really going to do it in just a a real conversational way. So um, why don't we just have the two of you introduce yourselves and share um, a little bit about, you know, where you were maybe when we first met years ago. Michael, do you want to start? Hi, I'm I'm Michael. I have a little harder time than my wife remembering the exact moment when we met, but I know it was early in our journey, and I'm a sex addict, and I was acting out in my marriage, outside of my marriage, watching a lot of porn and visiting prostitutes and had some affairs and all this behavior that, that I kept from everybody. And uh, it had begun before I met my wife and continued. And when things got very stressful in our lives with our kids, it really cranked up. And the best and worst point in my life was when she discovered me. The best because I would not be sitting here alive, I'm sure, if she didn't certainly would not be married if she if she didn't discover me and I wouldn't have begun my recovery. And why do you say that you wouldn't be married if she hadn't discovered you? Because I think I, I my life would have exploded on its own without her right. discovering me and I think that was the trajectory you were on. Yeah. It, it was pure self-destruction. So once I was finally able you know, once she did discover me and over time as I, you know, really uh, exposed everything and and told her, it's probably a bad choice of words in this setting. But uh, talked about my behaviors, and I really began to to get some help. It changed my life and turned it around. And it wasn't a cakewalk. It was very difficult. The work was was very hard, painful but necessary. And and how did you get discovered by your wife? She had been, I, I had withdrawn a lot and was isolating a lot and, and was not communicating. And she had had some suspicions for a while. That I called it my hum. On. Like there was just something, I, I had a hum. Just had a, a sense that, that something was not what it seemed and and she was right. And she went through phone, you know, my phone records. Check your email. No, check my email. <laughs> and then I went through your phone records and your credit card records. So actually, maybe, maybe rather than having you continue with the how did you get discovered, mm-hmm. maybe we turn it over to Marsha and you can share your sort of how you came into this and then bring us up to discovery. So I'm trying to thing. So I discovered Michael, gosh, it'll be 12 years this coming year. And maybe two or three years before that, maybe more, I suspected him of him, him of having an affair to begin with. And I confronted him. He swore up and down that there was nothing, but there was always like something in my heart that just knew, like I just knew. And then years went by and we had a wonderful marriage and wonderful relationship, wonderful kids, wonderful friends. And then Michael, as he said earlier, withdrew 
and started to just seem not present or, or connected. So I started searching and it didn't take long. There was someone that he was working with that was particularly triggering to me when I didn't even know what the word trigger was. Mm-hmm. So I searched their emails and I found a half-dressed picture of this person on her hands and knees showing a picture of her in her underwear. And I printed it out. Would you say that that really was the moment that of your discovery? Um, I printed it out and I waited for Michael to come home. And I confronted him and it took him, I would say he denied it for 45 minutes. And he was making himself dinner. I'd already eaten with the children, I remember. And sitting at our kitchen, my office was in the kitchen at that time. I was sitting and I was like, so I'm going to write this person whose email I have because I don't really feel like you're telling me the truth. And I think she would. And you came clean about her. And then, because I guess initially, I, I guess I should backtrack. He just said, no, this is like, she. I was feeling bad about something and she sent me this picture, but it means nothing. And, and this, is, this is really common because when someone gets caught with one thing, oftentimes they'll deny until they have to admit it. And then they'll say, and this is everything. Right. This is, you know, everything. And then he went to work the next day. I, as I recall, this was like a Wednesday and he went to work the next day. And I woke up and I just felt like something, I knew it wasn't it. Like I just knew, just like I knew about the affair several years before. And I knew about like, just to start looking. So I started looking at his telephone record and I started noticing repetitive numbers in like odd area codes. And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, what am I looking at? And I also was actually trying to find how many times he was in touch with this woman whose picture I found. And this is like the sad and funny thing about um, partners and discovery is that we become the best detectives that we ever could be. Like I learned things I would never have known had my husband not been a sex addict, but he was. So, and he still is, yes, because you're always a sex addict or an addict, even if you're a recovering one. So then I cross-referenced and I found all these, all these numbers to this person and then all of like these odd numbers. And I called him and I said, you're, I don't feel like you're being honest. Please call me when you get this message. And he called me and I'm saying like, I'm seeing all these numbers to, to this woman. And I was like, but wait, what are all these like repetitive numbers over and over and over again? And he said, Marsha, those are professionals. So you decided, Michael, in that moment to tell the truth. Yeah, there was just no... I mean, she had the evidence in black and white and, you know, I had been, I, I think I knew that, you know, this, my uh, successful days of hiding my secret life were, were numbered and she called me at work. And I said, get your ass home. And that does not happen with my husband's job. You do not you, work. You said I'm going to fucking divorce you. Okay. I wasn't going to curse, so you can wow. leave that out if you want. That's, no, I that's think fine. that's the only time I ever said it. That's the only time you ever said I'm going to divorce you. Well, no, I've said it recently. But <laughs> 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 right, right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, I was really pissed at him once a couple of years ago. Um, and drunk. And, and that, <laughs> as Marsha was starting to say, it's like for me to leave work, I've never left work. It's like it's a very big deal. And I, Since I've known him, 25 years, he's never left work. I left work and on the way home, I thought, okay, if I drive a car into the median and kill myself, they'll get the insurance. Mm-hmm. It'll be an accident. I didn't do that, thankfully. Um, so you kind of knew that your life was out of control. There was a, a deep side of you that knew on some level this is this is out of control. Yes, I was actively planning I, I was going to go to canada job after i finished the one i was working on within a matter of a week or something and i had already started researching it in terms of professional escorts that i could see and i remember telling myself you know as i was doing this because the the sort of research component was like my crack it just was 
I mean, it's well known in this field that the internet is just like an amplifier, perfect pressure cooker for the kick, you know, the hits that we get in our brain. And, and I was just like, I'm not going to sleep. I don't care. You know, I will stay up days just because I'm going to. So because you were going to act like, out, you were a junkie, you needed your, your fix. And I was just like, I was going to be out of the country for two weeks. So it was like, Hey, open season, you know, and, and, there's no way I would have survived that time without either you know, winding up in jail or or dead or so completely destroying my reputation professionally that I may as well. So, you know, to say nothing of what it would have done to my family and to Marshall. So, in a way, you know, maybe not in the very first instant because it was so horrible and I felt so terrible for what was happening with my wife that, you know, her discovery and, and everything blowing up, it, it, the beginning was, I mean, it was a, a relief to be discovered. You got your life back. I got my life back, you know, over time, yeah. but, you know, it's the place that many couples find themselves in here where the, the addict is discovered and begins this, it's this walk, this journey towards this, hope and, and, and a better life, simultaneously the partner, their whole world's turned upside down. So it's, we're in very different places typically. Yeah, that's what I see all the time. And I do want to ask Marsha for you to share what that was like for you when once your reality shifted and you know you knew now what was going on. But before you say that, I just want to say that in your case, because I've known you guys for a long time, you, Michael, sort of did everything right like right from the beginning if my memory serves yes. me you were doing everything, everything that you were read all the things all the things that we say do this right and even so the relational healing was slow and painful and scary and uncertain so i say that only to say that even in the you know quote unquote best case scenarios with an addict who right out of the door is empathic and doing what he needs to do this is still a really rough journey. And I say that not to dishearten people, but to be really honest and let people know that healing is possible and it can happen and it requires a lot of work and time and persistence. Here's the thing. I think that in my discovery of Michael, I know that I was so damaged myself that I I didn't put myself first. So... Pulled myself together. I was raised with like things go wrong. You pull up your bootstraps and move on. This is like stiff upper lip kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I was, he was, as you were saying, you know, did everything right. I used to call him the poster child mm-hmm. <laughs> of sex addiction recovery because <laughs> he like literally did everything right. And you know what? It didn't fucking matter. No, because he'd say like, what can I do to make this better? And I'd, I'd say, you can make this go away. That's what you can do to make this better because I was just so hurt. And even though I suspected an affair, like the, the degree to which his acting out really, it was just the sheer number. You had a formal disclosure? Yes, I did. And, and so, Marsha, so it was even like, even though he was doing everything by the book or so to speak, that in of itself was painful. Yeah, because it was like, I'll check in. Right. Oh, I need to know if you're like seeing another find attractive. Right. Every night, like a three second, wait, how many times he had to do the three second rule? For those of you that don't know this, who are listening, the three second rule is basically humanizing the person that the addict is objectifying in three seconds. Yeah. And I remember, and we can cut this out if it feels too personal, but I think it's important to mention, I remember you, after a certain amount of years of recovery, were sick of Michael going to a particular meeting because you wanted that time back yes. with him, right? Yes. You wanted to have your breakfast together and yes. your time with your family. And and I was almost jealous for the first two years of the camaraderie that he had with his brothers at this very, very prominent in the community meeting on Saturday mornings. And my kids were little. I wanted friggin' waffles and snuggles and not... My husband gone every Saturday from like seven in the morning until one in the afternoon. That just felt like, plus there was also a meeting for me, but of 
I went, then he couldn't go. And if he went, then I couldn't go. And I think the predominant theme of our early recovery was me making sure that Michael stayed sober, which meant like, oh, you need to go to your meeting. You go to your meeting. Right. So you, you didn't have him on the Saturday morning, but what, what was the... Uh, the alternative was right. like, I was out. What was he doing then? And how scary was that? So... Yeah, for like the first two years, I totally tried to control his mm-hmm. his recovery. Uh, like, I discovered him and we never separated. I was completely hypersexual because I thought like, oh, if you're seeing prostitutes, I'll just be your prostitute. So like whenever he wanted it, when I, like, it, it just, it wasn't healthy, but it's just the way I handled it. Mm-hmm. This is really helpful to hear. And then I'm wondering where that changed. Like, how did that change for you? How did you go from that place to taking better care of yourself and all right. of this and seeing you as being as important as Michael's recovery. Yeah, certainly in, in, in the partnership and the fellowship. Well, just to back up a little, I spent every Saturday morning we had to hire babysitters. What happened because there was a women's group at a facility here in Los Angeles. And I met my dearest partner in crime and recovery and, and she carried me through. So yeah, we just, every Saturday morning, we would go and we would go to this COSA meeting, which was a 12-step meeting that didn't speak to me, but I, at least I had like... Camaraderie. Camaraderie. And I spent every morning on Saturday morning getting a little placard with all the little faces on it, telling, you know, like, choose your feeling, your emotion today. And I'd be like, I'm good. I'm happy. And I would be I'm like... love. You know, I was like, like, it's so weird. What does she have that all these other women don't have? Right? Like, what's going on for her? She's taking happy pills. Yeah. You know? um, and everyone else is like crying. And it was like, I don't think you ever saw me cry in those first couple of years. Like, they're just... And you know, I was so out of touch with what I was feeling. And to be honest with you, in hindsight, I was an intern at that time. And I was new to it. If I had the experience that I have now... At that time, I likely would have talked with you and re- I would have recognized what was going on for you. Right. At the time, I, I didn't necessarily know. So I, I thought it was, I definitely knew that you were showing up and experiencing this very differently than other women. Again, if I'd, if I'd known, I would have approached you. And, and, and even if I had and made you aware, I would have said, you would have, oh, yeah. interesting. You weren't yeah, ready. I'm good. Yeah, you weren't ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you don't understand. I'm okay. Right. My husband's I was doing raised in a family that did not allow me to have any feelings at all. So I wasn't allowed to have my own feelings. So why should I have any feelings about this either? Let's just keep him healthy and happy and we're good. Right. Did that make make your your experience easier or were you waiting for the sort of her to have that aha moment where she really recognized the damage that had been done? Well, I suppose it, it must've made my experience easier because I mean, we really, I also did not recognize that she was not taking care of herself to the degree that I, I might now, but we really clung to each other. I think we were both scared shitless mm-hmm. and she recognized that I was sick and that I needed help and I was going to get help. And so both, you know, Marcia characterized it as, you know, she was trying to control my sobriety by taking a, a back seat herself and doing everything she possibly could to keep you sober to keep me sober which is impossible and you know so that's a lot of energy but she also cared about me and and loved me and wanted to help so i mean it was i think it was both those things so i felt very supported and we really did cling to each other a lot so i mean i hope that it wasn't one-sided and that you felt supported as well. I did. And I was, you know, was incredibly remorseful and expressive of that. And I was doing work too that, you know, with my therapist and my sponsor and, and just step work and stuff like that, that opened my eyes and helped in my growth. And I evolved into a better version of myself, but she needed, she had work to do still. But I mean, it's so funny thinking back to these days, which I have not done in a while to this degree, but the overarching feeling I have is that we were like, we're going to get through this. You know, we love each other. I never didn't love her, even in the midst of the 
the lowest points of my life and my behavior, it had nothing to do with whether or not I love function. So, which is something that I think likely if people are listening to this and they're where you were all those years ago, it's hard to conceptualize that someone who loves you could do those kind of things seemingly to you. Right. Because unfortunately with sex addiction, it was, you know, it's much more personal. Yeah. What really changed, I think that's what you asked was you switched centers. So like when we entered this forum reluctantly, (laughs) there was only one institute in Los Well, there were two actually there. And I think you probably took whichever one took us first is my guess. And Rob Weiss's place was really at the time, really addict-centric. And the Saturday meetings for the women, or or the partners, not necessarily women, although at the time it was predominantly women, we did not have a whole lot of men in the room. It called us addicts, it called us co-addicts. Like the model called us co-addicts and I found it to be so offensive. So that coupled with me trying to keep my husband sober and us happy and in love, coupled with this insulting term, which I was just like, oh, I hated it. There was something about the partner's recovery that was missing. And I think that kept me stuck for two years, being the wind beneath Michael's wings and keeping him sober and our family together and a good face because you had to project that everything was fine when I grew up. Like you couldn't be sad or unhappy or anything. And then Marnie, I believe at this time, must have been about 2010, you moved to another facility that was founded by Omar Mwala. Is that right? Yeah. I was there part-time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, but we moved with you. Yes. We went with you because yes. you were our therapist for two years and we were, that's where we wanted to be. Um, Not you as a couple. No, Jane and me. Right. <laughs> And there, that center was much more focused on the partner in addition to the addict. And it changed my life. And I would say, I don't know when this particular um, seminar was offered to us, probably in those early years that it was time. i remember that it was 2010 so okay, it must so have it been shortly after. it was like the first one you guys offered yeah yeah um, yeah um and the trauma model embraced the partner in a way that i just felt had been missing for two years um and it opened my eyes and it changed my life so is that when you were able to like recognize like you you all of a sudden you saw your own self and being able to have that reflected back to you? Yes. The trauma model is what that seminar or that weekend was definitely what, what helped me see that, that there was more to this, that, that something was missing. Right. I knew it, but now I found. But not just things. missing in general, but specifically for you. For me and for partners in general. Can I, I just want to throw in one perspective too, which is that, you know, for people who are just starting this journey, you know, some may have experience in 12-step programs and some may not. And I had none. And I drank, I did plenty of drugs growing up. And I always considered people who went to 12-step programs weak and, you know, Bible-thumping weirdos and like unnecessary. And I think there is sort of, you know, cultural bias against Maybe there is, maybe there's, I don't know. But when I began and I entered a 12-step program, I was like, oh my God. I mean, first of all, just the experience of uh, like people who may look completely different from me yet were telling versions of my story. and like, oh my God, I'm not alone. I mean, this is so powerful. Experience, strength, and hope, and all the wonderful things that can come out of fellowship of a meeting of any sort is really, really powerful. So I would go to these meetings and come home with this incredible awakening and as well as a spiritual awakening, my own, you know, of what a higher power is for me, my own understanding. And uh, Marsha went to meetings, the equivalent meetings for, for partners and really resisted. And yes, I mean, she, well, not resisted, did, didn't, didn't have the same experience. She didn't have an awakening. No. And 
my you met, awakening. You met people who were in a similar place, and that aspect of it was helpful for sure to just other people who've been in the who were in the trenches with you and in a similar place. Yet the format of it and the, the spiritual component didn't click for you, right? So it seemed, and I think it even sort of could lead to like an eye roll. For me, coming home when I'm like floating, especially in the beginning, this sort of pink cloud phase, where like, oh my God, there's all these great possibilities in life. And she's at the lowest point she's ever been due to my behavior and actions and not having a similar experience. So really, for her, the 12-step component was not helpful, personally, right? No, I did not relate to that 12-step component. I tried. Yeah, I but think in many ways that it can create further trauma to somebody who's traumatized and really needs that to be addressed. Because mm-hmm. as a standalone, Dwayne and I are both big advocates of the 12-step program. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to partner recovery and partner trauma, it doesn't work the same way. I just don't want to take my part in this one. Yeah. And I think what you describe too, what you guys talk about is so common with couples because for the addict, you're kind of in that moment where you finally see a light out of your your own internal pain and it feels good. And then the partner's in this dark space of betrayal and, and they don't, and until you understand it, you, it's hard to, it's like, well, why aren't you experiencing the same thing I am? Right. And, and, the and then I get angry. The, like the, the birthday is just like, or the birthday drove me crazy too. Like the celebration of, of you not fucking around on me was like, and yet what I made you like cupcakes to bring over to our best friend's house or something the first yeah, year. I remember, I I was remember like, you sharing that. What the hell is that? wrong with me? Oh, I remember they were red velvet cupcakes because they were your favorite. I've many times been red velvet. <laughs> 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 yeah, but no, there's two, but there's two things I want to say about this. One is that this dynamic is so very common. Like you come into to program, your life is on the brink of, you know, like you said before, self-destruction or it is on, so it is, it's self-destructing. It is, right. It's destructing. It's, <laughs> it's about to blow up and then you get help and things start to get better and you feel good about yourself for the first time because you don't have this secret life. Right. But then your partner is sort of collapsed in a heap on the floor and and at that time, especially, there really wasn't the kind of help that could give her what she needed, right? That could really help her with the right. traumatic impact. And, and that's what it feels like. It doesn't matter what what the behaviors were. When you hear what your partner has done, it is just like your heart has been cut into a million pieces. And people say doesn't matter if it's just my husband, my partner watched porn, my wife liked watching male gay porn, my, you know, my husband fell in love with so-and-so briefly, my, doesn't matter the, the sisterhood or it's what kept me going for those first two years, being of service, whether it was a 12-step thing or not. And what you were just talking about is what we call the existential crisis, because you believe something so strongly, you would have bet your life you've told me on the fact that Michael would keep you safe and that you could depend on him no matter what. And he was your person and he was your rock. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you discovered this, and I got a list of 90 names that told me otherwise. Yeah. And that's a crisis because it's like, wait, everything I believe to be true is not true. And then how do you make sense of that? Right. All there in black and white. Yeah. That is, it's, it's. Well, I mean, the details, I'm sure exacerbate the pain and give the partner specifics that probably as bad as the as the vague things that you imagine because that's why we do the disclosure right it's like well okay it's worse to let our mind go to the, all the places things that we think the addict has done right we have to go through this necessary process where it's all going to be spelled out it's a process for the addict it's a process for the partner and Hopefully, then, you know, we can move past that. It's also yeah. a process for the couple. Yeah. So, I mean, but it's tremendously, tremendously difficult on all sides of the equation. And I think this is, that is one where it's like, yes, it'll lead to a better thing, but no one feels good when that's happening. Times leading up to it are terrible. The process of hearing it and saying it out loud, and it's... You know, and it's also for the addict, like the fourth step and just, you know, all the 
sexual history and all looking at all these things in your life it's we get re-traumatized to having to look at things that closely and then write it down and then share it it's but again it's it's it is towards healing i have one thing that i just want to throw out there just before i forget it that but thinking about you know we mentioned earlier about how a partner you know, sex addiction is, is such a shameful thing for the partners because it's so hard to talk about it and it just doesn't make sense. How can this be an addiction when it's like these things done that, you know, hurt the partner so deeply? And the, I mean, one thing I think that can be helpful is just to think of it as the drug of choice. You know, it's like this, if not, not to compare it to other addictions, all addictions are, are like terrible and, and, and can destroy relationships with families and people yet it's like if there's an emotional component or something that's unbearable that the, the the addict does not know how to deal with they are going to look for comfort somewhere and it might be looking at porn it might be drinking a bottle of booze it might be shooting up something it might be gambling shopping all these things are just ways to suppress avoid and avoid you know what's really going on so and that's so true. And I'm glad you say it. And I think it's so important to recognize that when a partner comes in and finds out about this, hearing that does not, I'm not even going to say it doesn't help. It's not that it doesn't help. It's important to hear it, but it doesn't register. Because I've had clients that know that, you know, they get all the lectures, they get all the education, yeah, all the education all and then they the say, but how could he do this if he loved me? Or how could, I would never do this if I'm upset or I didn't have the best upbringing and I didn't have great coping skills, but I wouldn't have hurt my husband, right? So that's another area of complete disconnect mm-hmm. that, yeah, you were out of control and, and I can't even imagine what sort of trauma brought you into a life of sex addiction, right? And at the same time, there's nothing about that that minimizes the partner's pain. And I know you know this. Yes, and I didn't, bring it up as a way to, okay, now we can apply a Band-Aid. This is going to make something better. Just but it sounds like you you guys, through your work, have been able to get to that point. And I would love to hear about that as well. Like, to be able to have this conversation even. When did it start to shift for you guys? We always talked a lot. And I won't lie and say that I didn't use my wild card or my get-out-of-jail-free card. Game-winning card. Um, Argument-winning card. So... You know, we could be arguing about something completely unrelated. And, and I would say every partner who's, who's discovered their partner doing what my partner was doing has used that. Oh, yeah. And it could be like, you could be fighting about who picked up the milk, you know, or no, that's not a good analogy. But like, whatever, nothing related to this. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, at least I didn't fuck 90 men. <laughs> you know? yeah. At least I didn't tear our family apart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So then. Yeah. And there's no comeback to that. Yeah. Like right. he's like, well, fine. I'm out. You know, because yeah. like that is just the ultimate shutdown. It is not communicative. It is not useful. It's not anything. Well, and there's no. And there's no win. response. <laughs> Generally, if you played the game winning card, shall we say, I knew somewhere in the back of my head, ah. I won that argument because she had no other. <laughs> but it cards. wasn't winning or losing. Well, the I, win was that we made that it through all this. Yes. I think anytime we use win and lose in terms of relationship, you're already setting yourself up. <laughs> Absolutely, that's a great segue to talk about those couples, the couples recovery. The saddest part for me to witness as a couples therapist in the betrayal world is that, and you said it earlier, you guys were as a married couple, you were each other's person. You know, you're the one that each of you would seek solace in the other in times of stress or trauma, right? And when this happens, the partner needs help and support more than ever before. But the very person to whom she would go to for that support is the person that caused it. And that is so, that's such a painful, a horrible message. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a very uncomfortable and devastating place to find yourself. Because like, how do I go to him? And initially when I discovered him, we didn't tell anybody. It took us two months to even tell his parents, who we are close to, took several more months to tell my family and even more months to tell any friends. I would say it was six months before we shared with our first friends. 
So, which is likely why you found the support of your group so helpful. Right. Well, what I was wondering is, when did you start to kind of go, hey, we're we're starting to move through this. We're starting to move, say, beyond it. Um, so we did do this 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 trauma model um, weekend where we had lectures and then we were separated into rooms and we had to like write things down that I can't really remember, although I do have my cheat sheets if you need to know that. But what that weekend did for me is it was it was just like it was my aha moment. It was like, yeah, I haven't really been paying attention to myself, have I? So And just to put this in a context for people that are listening, this workshop that Marsh is talking about now is now the Helping Couples Heal workshop that Dwayne and I facilitate together. And then so that was two and a half years into me discovering Michael, maybe more, almost three. I believe it was the summer, that first one, but I could be wrong. It was like Mar- right now or the summer. So it was either two and a half or three years from the time that I discovered Michael. The couple's trauma workshop, I know it's called something different now, mm-hmm. was really, uh, I'm sure it's evolved since then because you've learned from every participant and you know it's hard to have a template first time was very helpful for me to understand more concretely the trauma that I inflicted on my wife. And the larger circle, well, I mean, I was already, I think I was very empathetic and remorseful and actions speak louder than words and, you know, doing things right within my own recovery and aware of the pain I caused, but not to degree you know, how deeply those injuries, you know, how many layers of skin and muscle and bone and heart they went through. So it really helped you like be able to see the trauma from this new lens outside of your own recovery. You knew you had hurt Marsha, but this really was able to put it in a way that you could even understand it on the deep level. Yeah. I mean, it, it was I mean, part, I, I remember I'm having some recollection of like some of the language was hard to, well, gaslighting was brilliant to understand. Like, oh, yeah. We used the word totally perpetrator. Yes. Yeah, so well, that, that was the thing I was going to oh, say yeah. that that was just hard to swallow. And I'd have to like really review the paperwork or think about it more deeply to get to the core of that. Yet I perpetrated these acts. Yeah, I think because it's such a criminal, you know, I associate solely, you know, with, with, with criminal mm-hmm. language. Right. You know, I, I hadn't thought of myself in those terms. The things I did were not sex offenses. So there's that distinction. Yeah, but, but they I were still, offending. I, they were offending and they... They certainly offended me. And, <laughs> and I perpetrated them. So, I mean, within the specifics of the vocabulary yes those words are true you know and i don't even now sir, i don't want to sound like i'm defensive or trying to backpedal or anything i take 100 percent responsibility for the things that i did that hurt you and hurt me and hurt our family and our friends you know i did them and no matter what even if it threw me off or hurt to hear or frame it that way as like the the language of a perpetrator, it, I think, was helpful for for me to understand and accept how much damage I had truly caused to the person I love the most. That's a real, to this day, you're right, we have changed the workshop and it's evolved and, and modified over and over. And yet what remains true is what you just said, that that's really a big goal, one of the goals is that the addict is able to truly hear and understand the incredible traumatic impact of that behavior. And the, and the, I always say it's not just the behavior, it's the ongoing and accompanying pattern of secrets and lies, right? That goes, in order to keep a secret life secret, you have to lie about it. Right. And, and of course, that's one of the ultimate ironies too, is that just talk about this, where when she discovered me, my secrets became her secrets. So I'm in a place now, I'm telling everybody everything. Not everybody. And well, I mean, everybody I'm seeing in meetings and in therapy and recovery scenarios and fighting the urge 
to tell everybody because, hey, telling the truth feels good. Letting people know you, who you are and what you're struggling with feels good, right? But now the partner is like, who can I tell? So it's this horrible handoff, you know, where my secrets became hers. Yeah, you inherited that. Yeah. So I think, Michael, you just did an amazing job of sharing what your experience was, like sort of your big takeaway from that. From the talk. From, from the, the, the workshop, yeah. So for you, Marsha, you had mentioned, but it was very vague, like you had this big aha moment and it was the, the beginning of a shift for you. Can you recall, it doesn't have to be specific, but an idea of what that aha moment was? Well, first of all, as I recall, it was shocking to me how many people were in that room, how many couples were in that room. Like, it was big. It was like 12 or 13 couples for a weekend that had put this time aside. It was, so that's 26 people plus all the facilitators. There had to be like 33 people in the room. We couldn't fit. Like, and that in itself, at the time, I hadn't barely even heard of sex addiction at the time. Now, you know, it's a punchline a lot, but, you know, it blew me away. And I guess I just, all the language that we were taught, you know, and how we were taught that it's so long, but that that we had PTSD as partners, that we, we had this, that hearing this information literally gave us the equivalent of what someone who goes through a severe physical trauma has or a physical or, or a mental trauma. It doesn't have to be a physical trauma, but like someone that's been assaulted, someone that's been mentally assaulted, you know, like anything, someone that's been to war, someone who was downtown during nine 11. There's like, there's just like the trauma, symptoms, the, were the the, the trauma symptoms were the same. So for instance, I was downtown during nine 11 and I am shaking the same way I shake when I look at a plane in the sky talking about discovering my husband almost 12 years ago in our relationship. Like we are married longer now than we were when I discovered him. Wow. I'm happy about that. So does that answer the question? Yeah. It sounds like you, because I can't remember the exact knowledge I learned, except that I learned how to take care of myself and to look at him in in a way, not as a, perpetrator per se, but as someone who could still be lying to me, like, yeah, I think it was still be gaslighting me could still be, and being able to recognize those symptoms that I didn't recognize before because that education wasn't there. Yeah. I think you allowed yourself to see your reality now for what it was. And I think that you had some, it seemed so dirty in the beginning. Like I couldn't even handle it. And you needed to believe you needed to believe that Michael was what you had always believed him to be. Right, there wasn't room for you to believe that he could do this again. No, I could. I could believe that every other addict in the world was a piece of shit, but I could not believe my husband was. Right, and you weren't, and neither was any addict. But like, I could talk and look at any other addict and like think like, oh, how could they do that? But like with him, I just embraced him and tried to make him better. It, it just was like ridiculous. But I think that that's what you needed. Like you talked I, I about your upbringing to and- be able to believe that he was a good man. So he is a good man. Yes, he is. And what happened in that workshop, I'm just reflecting back what I'm hearing you say. So tell me if this is accurate. Mm -hmm. But what happened in that workshop is that you couldn't run away for three days. Well, you were there for two of the three days, right? Because one of the days was just Michael. The first time was just you, I think. I think the partners went the first day, the second Uh, day, the addicts came in the third day, you came together as a couple. So you were there for two of those three days and they were long days. And all day long, essentially, you are being told that these are symptoms of trauma and your own trauma symptoms were being identified. And I think you couldn't run away from the reality. And also Michael gave you a really big gift because when he came in that that third day, when the couples came, he wasn't denying or minimizing. He was saying, yes, this is true. And so I think finally what I saw, this was my experience with you, is that I was able to see that you were willing to really acknowledge what had happened to you as a result of the discovery of his betrayal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I had lost. And for sure, I mean, in the trauma model, but like then we transitioned. So that was like a really amazing aha moment, like I said earlier. But then the real work came for two years after that. Michael, I have a question. Did you, did you notice that shift in her, you know, after the 
because you'd been in your own recovery for a while at that point. Yeah. Did that did that enable you to be more present I, for her stuff? My my answer to that is yes. You know, as I recall it, maybe you feel and differently. And you were always present for my stuff. It was very rare that you would. The, the hardest thing was like he'd start crying and I like, then I couldn't, like, don't cry. You wanted to take care of him. Yes. So. And I was I'm aware of that. I was very, I, I didn't want you to, you know, and I would say that if I did get very emotional, like I'm not trying to redirect. It's just, you know, this is I'm hard. So sorry, I did that to you. No. That's what you were thinking. Well, many no. things. I mean, but like that, to me, that seemed like the predominant emotion when I was like, you're like, no, 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 no. Like, don't be upset that I'm crying. You know, just, I'm so sorry I did that to you. But I did seem, feel like that was a turning point after that in terms of your your recognition that you needed to do more work on yourself. I, I was still probably just so grateful that I had a home to come to and a wife and children to come home to. And whereas many people that I knew in recovery, that was not the case. You know, lots of people were splitting up, devastated children and partners and careers blown up and all this stuff. And I was like, oh my God, I mean, I have, you know, I am so fortunate yet I recognized that some of that came, some of that was possible because Marsha was not really taking care of herself. So what, what do you think then happened um, as she started to do that process that she was just talking about? She was doing her, her trauma work after the, the workshop, right? What did you see shift? And were you, were you scared of the fact that she was now doing it? You mentioned, I think, feeling grateful and it sounds like he was supportive. Oh, yeah. Well, there was, there were definitely moments where, you know... He's never seen my... It's, she's, she had to do... She had to go to a lot of painful places in a deep way, not in a surface way. And my recollection at the time is just trying to give you space and just trying to take care of everything else around the house, make sure the kids are okay, so that you could do that. Right. So you would have the time and the headspace and the clarity to do it. That's, right. that's my recollection of it. And for sure, there were times when stirred up stuff that spilled into the moment. And I recall that I recognized that and was able to not engage in a, in a way that was destructive. You know, even, you know, there, obviously there were things that you said hurt me sometimes and, you know, they needed to be said. And I knew that this was part of the, the journey, you know. I would say the most traumatic part of learning about you and your behavior was having to go get the STT test. Like that was, I, I can still feel that emotion. Like getting that AIDS test was just horrendous. And we went together, but like, I just remember just like crying, like just like, how is this in my life? Like finding this like, you know, instant clinic downtown. Like we had to drive into like the barrio practically. And like, it was just like, how is this my life? I'm like a housewife from... Beverly Hills, and like, how did this happen? How did, how? How did we get here? How did we get here? Thanks for bringing me here. But you see, like, that's often what you did, and that's not what I needed. It was the self-deprecation never was helpful for me because I wanted to be healthy so that we could be healthy as a couple. Well, I understand that you go to a place of shame. That's not why I bring this stuff up. I'm not feeling shame. I was being half lighthearted about it because you know, I did bring you there. Literally and physically. <laughs> and but my actions because your actions. And you know what's interesting is you just said something that in so in so many ways illustrates the whole secret life of sex addiction. You just described even in recovery once there had been a discovery that you went to like the barrio, right? To this little clinic yeah, that you even, found. I didn't even tell my gynecologist. Right, do you hear that? So there's- Like I was so, too full of shame. Right, like, you, you inherited the secrets. That would have been a different story. Then it makes sense. People can understand that. Oh, that's sad, but it's not like, 
this amazing stigma of like, oh, your husband cheated on you. What did you do wrong? You obviously didn't keep him happy. Yeah, so you inherited the secret life. So, okay, so why don't we transition and talk about what your life is like today and how it's different than those, those, those early years in recovery? Well, I mean, it's, it's very different. You know, we've grown a lot, both continue to do work on recovery and being on ourselves. Sometimes couple work, probably not enough. You know, we're out of the sort of like crisis zone by many, many years, yet things still come up in our daily life that can, can trigger Marsha. And I need to work my program in those moments and be present go, oh, okay, yes. That makes sense based on our lives together and, and the, the fact that I, that I did the things I did. And of course she's going to be triggered by that. So we can get through this and, you know, talk it out. And because the huge rupture we had in our marriage sucked like nobody's business, but we would not be together today had it not happened. So, um, right. So how, so right. So talk about that. So that's what we're, so while we are strong and we definitely both withdraw, we definitely both still fall into the dances, but generally I think that like you and I both can recognize and talk through most anything. Like I know that something's off with Michael in a way that I would never, it would have taken me so much longer to recognize. And I would have been like, what's up? Uh, or I, I tell my best friend like, oh, I can't stand what's before I discovered him. Like, I don't know what's up with him. And I would just say like our last two years have been very particularly difficult with our family, not with us as a couple. And we we seriously, we wouldn't have made it, right? I don't know I don't how we, we would have made it through this time had we not a gone through this and but really be done the work. Yes, the work is so important. That's what saved us. I mean, it made us better human beings. I mean, there were times, I mean, I've said in meetings, thank God I'm a sex addict. Because if I wasn't, I'd just be moving through life clueless. Like, hearing myself say this out loud, it's kind of stupid and pretentious. I'm like, I probably, was probably the first couple years of recovery. But like, I had a deeper level of understanding of, of so much beyond just the defining drug of choice of my addiction that it made me feel sorry for people who weren't in recovery. Not no, it's not necessarily just false. It's just like being present and being, you know, and although specifically for me, the, the relief of lifting off this unbearable weight of shame and secrecy and self-hatred and despair and, and ultimately self-destruction that just would have, would have ended my life to lift that off and see the world, see my family, see myself differently was so unbelievably transformative. It changed every aspect, every area of my life. You became a stronger, stronger at your job. Um, you, you know, and I became more intuitive I think an understanding of differences and there for my friends in a way that not just my friends that have husbands or partners in recovery but just friends in general just gave me an eye-opening experience to like you just never know you just never know what people are going through I think that a hundred percent of the people that do not know that Michael is a sex addict and that we've been in recovery for it for the last almost 12 years would never know that we'd ever had a moment's strife in our relationship. Um, people always say like, you guys are like the cutest couple. I want to be just like you. How did you do it? And I just look at them straight in the eye and I say, it's a lot of work. I think it just, you know, listening to you guys talk and share your story, it's, it's just profound. And the amount of, you know, for people out there who feel hopeless and lost at this point to know that there is something different. There is. Could, can I ask each of you to sort of spell out what that looks like for you doing the work? What does that mean? 
Because again, if somebody is really at the beginning and they haven't even gotten to the office of a therapist, right? That might be very confusing. It was terrifying. So the beginning, uh, you did it actually. I mean, I looked, but you actually, I went to, as I recall, um, our daughter's was just starting kindergarten when I discovered Michael. She's a junior in high school. And I went to a birthday party with a friend of hers and you came home, I came home and you had written the person who I saw the, I discovered you on the, the email saying, I can never have contact with you again, please. I, I'm replacing you on the thing we're going to be doing soon. And he was ready for recovery. That's what he did. Like you said, he did everything he had to do. Like I was not, I did not say you need to do this and you need to do that. You need to go to therapy and you need to go to, you know, rehab. And you need, I didn't do any of that. I said, this is you. Well, so, I, I said, I'm the first one who said, I think I'm a sex addict. Right. And you asked me if I had cancer, would you stay with me? Which was really manipulative. <laughs> I don't remember that part. I believe you. I believe you. I, it was that, that Thursday afternoon you came home when I told you I was going to divorce you. So you were really rasping for like really strong ammunition on that one. But <laughs> oh, the, the truth is, even though I didn't under, fully understand the, the, you know, the, the degree of addiction, I knew that I was sick. I didn't know that I could be helped, but I knew that I was sick. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it was, there was just no question that A, I wanted to save my relationship, but I wanted to save my own life too. And I knew that if I continued my behavior, my life was going to be unsavable. So it was a crisis and it was like, okay, what do you do in a crisis? And, you know, it's like identify the big things and, and take care of them and, you know, it's a triage and, and you know, following instruction trying to be open to the process. It's, you know, the beginning is extremely, extremely difficult because, you know, while you can have these great highs of epiphany-like moments in, in recovery, either with, you know, a therapist or couples counseling or in a 12-step meeting, there's a lot of shame in there as well. And just, and old habits, you're not an addict because you do something casually. You are going to have to pay attention and 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 be present and, and honest with yourself because a lot of things become reflexive. And if you're unconsciously moving through life, which you do as an addict, then the shift to like being present and intentional and and cognizant of your own behavior and recognizing it, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's like, oh, shit, I guess I just did that. How could... You're right. Learning how to, how to say, I'm sorry, and mean it. Learning how to recognize your character defects and how they manifest themselves in your daily life is, is a process. I mean, it's... I, I realize a lot of people who may hear this are not going to be in the same spot I was. You know, maybe they sought help themselves. Maybe they brought the problem to their partner's attention. Not everyone is discovered. But for those people who were discovered, it is so, it's such a huge rupture to the fabric and understanding of their partner's lives that very, I would imagine very few people would be as fortunate as I was to have Marsha, who was determined to stay if we hadn't had kids, she has told me she would have been long gone. And who could blame? So it's there are landmines everywhere. It's a it's uncharted territory for every participant, except the team and except the partners of addicts and the other addicts that you'll meet on this journey. And there is hope. There is hope. And not every relationship will make it. But it's still worth taking this journey so that each individual has the opportunity to grow and not make the same mistakes again. And in the case of couples that, that don't stay married or, or partnered, that they 
can continue to have some overlap in their lives if that's necessary in a way that's not violent or destructive or painful, or volatile, just there is a chance for recovery. Just to touch on what you said, sweetie, about like, even if the couple doesn't stay together, doing the work is so very important. As we used to say it very early on in my recovery is if you don't do the work, doesn't matter if you're with, for me, Michael, or Harry or Henry or, you know, whomever, if you don't do the work, Michael, Harry and Henry are going to be all the same people. So you will be open, opening yourself to more pain. So while I hated the word co-sex addict, I think learning not to choose another addict is a really important thing. Another huge motivator for me was... This ends with me. I was not going to pass this on to our children. Had to end with me. It ends with us. Not just you. We're in this together. Whatever that means. However, I saw myself as a sick and damaged person. I always have, and you know, I love children. I didn't. I didn't want to have kids of my own. Because I knew on some level, I believed on some level that I was bad. And that whatever, even though I didn't name it or, or fully recognize it, but whatever was bad it should not be passed on at all. And you know, I guess that's not like a genetic level. I still I, I felt that. You know, I did think of that every day. And we had kids and I got over that sense you know, that, that holding me at, hold me back. But, but the, when this, when I was discovered and I began my road to recovery, that was and is a huge motivating factor. I can see that. And I'm curious, how do you feel about you today? A lot better than, than I did. You know, I saw my moments where critical of myself, where I, don't believe in myself or I, I want to, you know, the voice in the back of my head that, that tells me I'm a piece of shit or I'm a fraud or I'm a failure or a bad person or all those things. The voice didn't stop. I just don't listen to it. And I have tools to, to deal with that. And some days it's easier than others to do that. And, but none of it would be possible for me, I think, without, Having gone on this this journey, yes, with Marsha looking for credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have given, I will say, you've given yourself, for, first and foremost, yourself, but also Marsha and certainly your children, the greatest gift you ever could have given them. You've given them the gift, actually, of you. And as you said earlier, the best version of you. As a daughter, I can't imagine wanting anything more from a parent. And so I'm glad you had children, in the sense that it's, it sounds like it's the biggest motivator that you had. Thank you. And, and it's yeah, been a motivator for me too. And yeah. it's been incredibly helpful to have a language of recovery in dealing with some things that one of our children is going through. It's, I'm just grateful that I, I've had this experience now that if I'm in a good place, because I'm still, I'm not, no one's perfect, but if I'm in a good place and I'm available emotionally and I am present, then I can help our child, you know, on his journey. So you have said to me on many oh. occasions before something about how you view your relationship today. I don't know if you remember that you feel like you married. I wanted to hear oh, it in your okay. voice. So, your, your words. So... When I discovered Michael, we started disclosing to our friends, this was probably after I started TRT, trauma resolution therapy. I used to say he's become the man I always thought he was. So I said that. And I also said things like, well, yes, you said if I cancer, would you stay? I kind of look at your addiction as a cancer. And well, I'm simultaneously grateful and not grateful for it. Like I said earlier, there is zero chance we would have made it had we not done this work. Had I not done this work, because you could have done all the work in the world, but if I was still angry, 
and just stuffing it, it was going to come out in ways that just was not healthy for a, for a relationship to continue on the right path. So, Marsha, as we conclude, what would you tell somebody listening right now um, who might be where you were when you first discovered Michael's betrayal? There's hope. It doesn't matter what your path is or how you do it. If you do it like we did it, where he never moved out, we were always just really connected or he goes to rehab and stay home with, with this person is exactly like me with young children. And that's really hard because you just, uh, it's all on you still, but the work is just so important. Or you, you just won't make it. You won't make it as a person, whether you're, you make it in your relationship or not. You need this time for yourself. If you aren't there for yourself, you're not there for your partner or your family. Great advice. And these guys are great. So go for them. She's she. She's talking about us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank you guys enough for sharing your story. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you are finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.